Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Joining us now on Hal Anderson Afternoons, the home edition here on CGOB, Arvid Lowen, who is on his bike and continuing to cycle out there. Arvid, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks, Hal, and thanks for that introduction music. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, your niece, Carolyn Klassen, is coming up later. She's a regular on the show, and I know uh, she and the rest of your family are, are really proud of you. Uh, for people that didn't hear us chat about a month ago before you started this, explain what you've done. Well, I set out to break the Guinness World Record for cycling for the furthest distance in one month, which is categorized as 30 days. And I have and you- finished. I, I did that one yesterday evening, so that is one day early, actually. And how many kilometers did you cycle in less than a month? Well, I cycled uh, 11. To break the record, I had to reach 11,315 kilometers, which it did yesterday. And so, of course, today I am adding to that record so that the next person that attempts this has a bit bit bigger of a challenge to do. So so I am out still riding. <laughs> Today's gravy. And yet you sound great. Was it difficult, challenging, easy? How was it for you? Well, if you break a Guinness World Record, I don't think it is easy. Then it yeah. be a record. So, no, it, it, it's been very difficult. 30 days is a very long time. And, uh, you know, physically, that's the one thing. I mean, that's very hard. But mentally, it's also ex- extremely difficult to keep going. And you're not a young guy. I mean, it, tell people how old you are and, and how many times you've done stuff like this. Well, I prefer to look at my age as, as I'm 36. But <laughs> my birth certificate probably says 63. So that's what I am. Incredible. And you're doing this for a a cause very near and dear to your heart. And in fact, when you talked about why you're doing this and why you've done things like this over the years, when you, when you talked about that, when you and I chatted a month ago, you got emotional, you broke up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, a long time ago, I, decided that the common notion that the little bit I can do does not matter in the big picture. And I decided that was not for me. And then, so once you dedicate in the, in your life to something that you believe in and you see the difference you can make, uh, yeah, emotions come to the front. And I'm, I'm, I'm one of those people. And uh, especially when I have been on a bike for 30 days straight, that gets a, gets a little bit hard. But yeah, I'm, I'm raising funds. And awareness for an organization called Muli Children's Family, a street children rescue mission in Kenya, Africa, which has been in existence for 30 years uh, and has rescued by now it's about 20,000 children with 15,000, 16,000 that have graduated, moved on to better things, and they have 4,000 uh, children under their responsibility right now. Can you tell the story again about the child that you met and, and how that affected you? Oh boy! Now you have to remind me which one because there's been, um, oh, maybe, maybe it's this one. Uh, like when I in 2005, when I took um, my ultra marathon cycling to a level and wanted to do something with it, I decided to take uh, take a tandem bike, cut off the rear pedals, and put a seat on it, and transport three children in rotation from this kind of organizations from Willie Children's Family across Canada in 30 days, but. I also took some pictures, uh, some uh, stories for inspiration, and for no apparent reason, 
I chose a little girl named Charity. Charity was born to a teenage mom, poverty, left, uh, and poverty, this this little child was left on rocks by the side of the river and eventually was rescued by Muli Children's Family. It was just this typical story that in a newspaper we turn the pages or or, uh, turn the TV channel when these stories are on. I was no different. A couple of months later, when my wife and I went to visit what we have represented it, in the back of the room that we were um, part of an evening program of singing, little kids ran around. I have 11 grandchildren right now. I love little kids. I held out my arms and the little girl jumped on my lap. It, it happened to be Charity. See, I had carried her picture for 30 days and 7,000 kilometers. Now she sat on my lap for 30 minutes and everything changed for me. No picture of a child in need is a picture for me anymore. I know it is a real person. And once we allow ourselves to understand and take the approach that, yes, these are real children, and it is only a matter of a decision, and these children can can have a life filled with hope. And so that's what we did, and my wife and I have committed our lives to this. And so since 2005, we've raised by now, it's close to $8 million for Moody Children's Family. And just for an idea, because people are always interested, you know, you're cycling so many hours, what does it make a difference? This event has already brought in about $350,000 for Muli Children's Family. And they're caught in the pandemic, the same as, as everybody else is. And so this money is actually going to buy emergency relief food for children who have been temporarily sent back because the government closed uh, four of their schools, totaling 2,500 children. So this is emergency relief food, 45 cents Canadian, buys one meal. So when you're looking at $350,000, $400,000, these 30 days have pretty well raised 30, uh, 1 million meals to feed starving children. Incredible. Arvid, congratulations. And you're going to keep doing this. I know you will, right? Uh, I'm keeping going, yes. But, you know, the other thing I was going to mention, we are due due to COVID, we're not having, we're having a program at the end at 6.45 p.m. today, but we are live streaming. So all people have to do is Google Arvid Law on Facebook, and they can join us. As I mentioned before, we have 11 grandchildren. They will be accompanying me on the last kilometer. Uh, they're all under 10 years to 10 years and under in age, and there will be a lot of fun stuff on this program. You can live stream at uh, Arvid Law on Facebook at six, starting at 6:45. Incredible. That'll be special, having all the kids there with you. I, I have, Speaking of kids, your son Paul wrote this in Carolyn Klassen. Uh, you know, we you're affectionately called Carolyn's crazy uncle, and, and I mention that only because of what I'm about to read. Uh, your son Paul wrote this. What brings me to tears is the commitment to his passion. The cycling is one thing, and it will always be extreme. But more than that, it is the drive to help the less fortunate, fortunate, to seek justice for the oppressed, to give his platform to those whose voices are crying out but never heard. In a world of injustices, that's what sticks with me. And it's unfortunate, really, that this is seen as crazy when it should be normal. Isn't that nice? Yeah, it's nice. Thank you. Oh, you're making me cry again. <laughs> well, don't cry. 
because you're on a bike, and I want oh, you to I get to the talk. end of this. Uh, I want you to get to the end of this safely. Arvid, I'm so happy for you. Thank you for making time at the start of this, and now here close at the end. Thanks so much for having having me, and don't forget to streamline Arvid Lowen Facebook. Arvid Lowen Facebook page: A R V I D L O E W N. Arvid Lowen Facebook six forty five tonight incredible amazing stuff joining us now mj vanias mj is an author and freelance journalist and he likes the strange stuff mj good afternoon hello how are you great good to talk to you again and a winnipegger i should mention as well and uh works with vice and writes and and does uh, reporting for all kinds of big names out there um, I wanted to ask you, before we get to the Mars rover, which blasted off this morning, uh, and I want to ask you about that, what do you make of this report in the New York Times? Let me get it right here. It's called the Pentagon's Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Task Force. Basically, it's a program, and the Times reported on this, it's a program to investigate unidentified flying objects, primarily focused on whether other countries are using aviation technology that could pose a threat to the U.S., but retired officials are saying it also hopes to find evidence, or at least look for evidence, of vehicles from other worlds. You know, this drip, drip, drip of this information from, uh, you know, official organizations like the Pentagon continues, and a lot of people say we're on the verge of maybe disclosure. Sure. Well, listen, it's it, it's big news um, when it, when you know it, it was recent that that Congress came down um, with a, a new bill, an intelligence bill, a, a few weeks ago, asking um, the various intelligence agencies to sort of provide public oversight on on what they're doing in regards to investigating. Uh, UFOs or what we call unidentified aerial phenomenon today. Um, so, you know, there, this kind of came out that, that it turns out the, the Pentagon and the Navy, actually, the United States Navy still has an active, um, program that, that tries to investigate and identify sort of unknown vehicles that, that tend to make incursions into, uh, protected airspace, namely American airspace. So, this was sort of a big deal, and I wrote about it for Vice alongside another journalist, and, and we covered the story. Um, and then the New York Times recently, kind of a little late to the party, uh, came out, but, you know, added this interesting little side sort of piece to it, which was, you know, mm-hmm. some of the briefings that senators had um, were with a gentleman named Eric Davis, and he basically explained, you know, there might be, and the big kind of word here is might be evidence that, you know, uh, several decades ago in, in the 1940s or 50s, um, there may have been a recovery of a of, of vehicle that crashed in the United States. And it might be not from around here, if you, if you catch my drift. Um, you know, unfortunately, with that, we can't do very much. This, this, this could be rumor. This could be someone's belief. Or maybe it's real, but um, right now the evidence is still out. But it's definitely an interesting little UFO tidbit that just came out. But it really has changed a lot, even just in the last little while, before nothing was ever said. Deny, 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 if you even got a denial. Now we're starting to hear stuff like this, which really is quite incredible considering the way it's been over the decades. For sure, you know, being uh, someone who's always been interested in this kind of weird stuff, the, the 
the weird topics and the strange topics, um, the last several years have really been um, a game changer um, in, in, in the sense that a lot of mainstream publications want to talk a little more about UFOs. And I think in, in a more serious way, and I think that's kind of the important bit. UFOs make news headlines, and they have been making news headlines for a really long time. What's different now, I think, is there's sort of a, a breed of, of journalist, and there's a breed of editor out there, and there's just a breed of person out there who's much more willing to deal with this topic in, let's say, a more serious way, and not, you know, smirk and giggle and play the X-Files music in the background and, and make fun of people wearing tinfoil hats. I think that the topic is being a little more accepted now um, amongst mainstream audiences. And, and that's a good thing, right? If, in order to kind of get to any answers, we have to be able to talk about it in a serious way. Boy, am I ever glad we didn't play the X-Files theme to start the, start the segment with you, because we usually do that kind of stuff. But I think the reason we're having conversations like this more in the New York Times and Vice and you know some of these big names in media are paying more attention to this is because polling shows that more and more people are believing in UFOs and, and life on other planets, right? Sure, and, and I think that that's, you know, there's been a lot of things happening, right? There's been this massive resurgence of interest in space. Um, I think we had this kind of stint in the 90s and, and early 2000s where, where space wasn't something that was sort of feasible anymore, right? It got really expensive. You know, we relied on the Russians to get us into space. There was, you know, there's just, there's a lot of politics and economics involved. But now with Elon Musk and SpaceX and all of the other private space kind of industries that are coming out, you know, NASA has recently announced it wants to get to Mars by 2026 or something to that effect. You know, there's, there's this reinvigorated interest in the stars. Um, you know, we're building a brand new telescope, um, you know, in, in Chile. So, so, you know, there's, there's, again, there's, everyone wants to know what's going on in outer space now. Um, and UFOs are kind of part of that in a weird cultural mm -hmm. way, right? Um, yep. and, and there's been a lot of evidence coming out recently that there are objects in the airspace that are unidentified. And now the Navy has come forward and confirmed, this was about uh, you know, six months ago or so, confirmed, yep, you know, we do have video footage of objects in our airspace. We don't know what they are. We can't identify them. Therefore, they're unknown. Um, you know, people are, are, are kind of finding this, this content much more compelling now than they used to maybe a decade ago or so. All right, you've led me le nicely into this report I want to play because uh, NASA launched a, a new Mars probe this morning. Take a listen to this, and then we'll talk about it. It's called Perseverance, and will travel to space on a United Launch Alliance Atlas V rocket from the Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. Maybe there was life there. Let's go find out if there was life on Mars. Perseverance will go to a giant crater on Mars, believed to be a former lake bed, and look for signs of life, past, or present. We're going to cast samples on the surface of another world to bring those samples back to Earth. And here's another clip from the head of NASA here. And, and again, you don't normally, or you haven't lately, maybe lately you're starting to hear officials like this talk like this, but for a long time we've never heard anything. Listen, another clip from uh, the administrator at NASA. If this little rover were to discover biosignatures of ancient life on Mars, I think it would transform how we think about space exploration and discovery. I think you would see a lot of people wanting to do a lot more science and and make discoveries as to what is out there 
even in our own solar system. So he makes a good point there, MJ. You know, if we do see something out there and everybody goes, what's this? That's just going to take the interest level through the roof, isn't it? Oh, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um, you know, there's a, if you ask the vast majority of astronomers and, and astrophysicists and, and, and people who work in, in the scientific field, they will tell you, listen, life most likely exists outside of Earth, right? We're going to find bacterial life probably in a lot of places in, in the galaxy. But the problem is no one has yet, right? So it still kind of exists in that, well, you know, maybe not. Maybe we're the only form of life. You know, there's that kind of speculative idea. Once it gets confirmed, though, once, you know, hopefully, right, you know, Perseverance returns the data and sure enough, you know, we have found microbes or, or, or some sort of bacteria or virus or whatever that lives or, or used to live on Mars. I mean, obviously, this opens the door, right? People who, mm. who all these scientists who grew up as kids watching Star Wars and, and all that stuff, right? The X-Files, yeah. suddenly, you know, the next step is, well, listen, we've discovered life outside of our planet. Now we need to discover intelligent life outside of our planet, right? Not just yeah. fossils or bacteria. We need to find the things that are like us, right? Um, they have technology and they can use that technology and they can think like we can think and, and, and kind of, you know, we extrapolate from there. It, it's obviously going to be a massive, massive shift in the way I think we perceive our little planet. I think it's going to be a massive shift in the way we perceive what it means to be human. It's going to change everything. Mm -hmm. Hey, uh, quickly, before I let you go here, MJ, you, you're into covering uh, news, like the strange stuff. Strangest story that you've heard lately, strangest story that you've written about or, or covered? Well, the UFO stuff is always bizarre. Um, the yeah. strangest story that I've covered, um, well, listen, this is the strangest story someone's told me, and, I, and I've, I've talked about it, but I've never written about it, so can I do that? This is an alien yeah. story, can I do this? Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. so when I was doing research for my book, um, I was meeting with, with people, different people who, who, you know, had experiences, you know, they say with, you know, with an alien or, you know, UFOs mm -hmm. or whatever. I kind of ran the gamut of, of meeting with people, and, and one woman uh, told me a very interesting story where it was the middle of the night, and, and she sort of sensed that something was in her backyard, this bright light. So she, she walks into her backyard, and this, this, this ball of light is shining in her backyard, and then this sort of hatch opens and out hops um, a man-sized rabbit. And it stares at her, turns around, hops back into the ball of light, and it shoots back up in the sky. And I, and I mean, when she told me this story, I mean, I'm listening to her being like, this is, this is the craziest thing I've heard, a giant rabbit. And, <laughs> and that's how she interpreted, I guess, whatever she saw. I couldn't believe it. I said, that's, wow. That's, like, and as someone who has a garden in his backyard, and I have to deal with rabbits all the time, yeah. this is like my nightmare, right? <laughs> like, too. I have this yeah. tiny yeah. little rabbit that's eating my beans 24-7. I can't get rid of them. Uh, if he was the size of a man, I'd have a problem. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was kind of a humorous and, and bizarre story I heard. But she wasn't smiling or laughing. She had a straight face. She told, as far as you're concerned, she saw that. I have to be honest. Um, I have no reason to believe that she's making it up. Um, right. So, you know, I think I believe that she believes um, is the right. safest answer. Yeah. Um, but you mm -hmm. know what? I, I have to be honest. I've been covering this beat for a really long time now. I have heard a lot of stories, um, and and I, you know I'm I'm not at the point yet where I necessarily sort of personally believe a lot of this, but 
um, I've heard enough and I've spoken to enough people that I'm, I'm convinced that, you know, something bizarre and weird is going on. I think the world is a little more interesting than we make it up to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's some, you know, strange mysteries that we have yet to totally uh, sort of unravel and understand. Um, and I like that. I like living in an interesting world yeah. where there's a few mysterious things still left to, to be discovered. So you never know. Mm-hmm. Maybe what she saw yeah. was real in some way. Maybe, yeah. Hey, MJ, thanks a lot for this. We'll talk soon. Yeah, always a pleasure to be on your show, Hal. Thank you so much. Carolyn Klassen from Connexus Counseling. Uh, Come on in here. Uh, I've had a couple of weeks off. Nice to chat with you again. I hope you've been well. Great to chat with you. Yes, uh, I have been well, and um, welcome back from vacation. Yeah, thanks. Good to be back. Um, I'm looking forward to us uh, uh, chatting. So let's start there. And I don't want you to weigh in on the mask debate because, you know, it is what it is. But here we go again. You know, we've got some parents out there can't wait to get the kids back in class and and others are worried and say they may not send their kids back to class. So, you know, again, we've got sort of two camps here and, and we've got a debate going on. And is it unfortunate when um, there's a world pandemic and we need to band together and we're recognizing we get through this together that we allow um, issues like this to divide us in a way that makes us less united in becoming, I think the best way we fight a common enemy is to be on the same side uh, of the table as we face it. And I think when issues like this divide us, it's harder for us to figure out how we're all going to work together. And I think ultimately... We all have in common that we want the children to be able to have as normal education as possible. We want them to be able to get together with their friends and socialize and do all those things that we know are part of normal human development. And we want them to be safe and also not be exposed in a way that puts them or any of their loved one at risk. We all agree with that, and now we have to figure out how best to do that. And I think it's important to have open discussions and to have be uncomfortable with those discussions because we're not going to see eye to eye, but to recognize that at the end of the day, we're all pulling in the same direction, and that is to have happy, healthy children develop into happy, healthy adults. Yeah. Uh, but listen, uh, there is a benefit to kids learning in the classroom again, right? It's it's normal. Well, it, it is normal, and, and I saw... I think what we're doing is we're balancing risk with risk. Um, and I, uh, I blogged about it this week where I said, you know, I used to work in the hospital with people um, on um, medical units where after they'd had a bad fall or some sort of small stroke or something like that, and they had fallen and now they were in bed and they were safe in bed, but now I wanted to get them moving to get them um, towards being healthy and be able to go home. And often they would say, no, 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 I'm just going to stay in bed where it's safe until I feel stronger and then I'll get out of bed. And what I would try to say to them is that I I know that it feels risky for you to get out of bed, but it's actually at this point riskier for you to stay in bed because the advantages of getting up getting the circulation moving, getting your lungs clear because you're taking deep breaths, that's actually good for you. And there's risk and there's a cost to not going out. And I think we're recognizing that there's a cost to putting our kids out there, but there's also a cost to having them stay home. And we need to figure out which of the risks 
sort of recognize all the risks and balance those out and then realize what can we do to lower those risks so that we all feel as safe as possible. When I would help get those patients out of bed in the hospital, I wouldn't just sit or send them out on their own. I would be really close by. I would have a transfer belt on them. I would bring a walker. And so there were ways in which we were managing their fear by making sure we were doing what we could to help them be as safe as possible. Well, and I've also seen you write about um, another metaphor, write about uh, how we have to have a relationship with this virus, much like we might have to have a relationship with a former partner. Go into that a bit, because I think that's a, a really good comparison. So, yeah, so I often think of metaphors as I'm trying to wrap my head of how am I going to navigate this next place and, and how am I going to talk with clients about it as it might come up in session. For me, the analogy of uh, living in this world, when, when you separate from uh, and, and there's an acrimonious relationship that isn't going well and the marriage ends and you say, I don't want to have anything to do with that person, it often isn't an option because you might have children in common. And so you have decided you can't live with this person, but you also can't ignore their existence or pretend they don't exist. And so there becomes this uneasy relationship where you have to figure out, I'd rather not see this person. I don't want to share this world or my children with this person. But the fact is that I do. And how now am I going to figure out how to share space with this person that I'd rather not be with. I, I, I have to figure out an uncomfortable relationship and learn to live with this person in my life, even though it's not easy. And I ask, think of what, what if we thought about the virus as an ex-partner or a former partner to say, we have to share the world with this virus. We have to figure out how to share custody of the grocery store and even custody of our children with this virus. And now how do we keep ourselves safe? Um, how do we mitigate the risk? but also how we, we don't hide out. We can't, it's not an option to pretend it's not there. We have to figure out how to live with it, even though making friends with it might be a bit of a stretch, but we have to develop an uncomfortable relationship with it because it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere fast. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.